Good morning. You'll see I had somebody do an artist's rendition of me up here on the screen. <sighs> they took a lot of artistic freedom in that. We'll just leave it at that. But um, No, you're not losing your minds. Mike didn't get a whole lot better looking in the last week. Um, Mike's not here this week, so you get the substitute this morning. And so for those of you, there may be a few of you out there who don't know who I am. My name's Bryce, and uh, we'll, we'll give this our best shot this morning. But um, we're going to do a sermon this morning. I'm calling Superhuman. Now, how many of you out there can honestly tell me that you, you enjoy a good superhuman movie, like a good superhero movie? Raise your hands. Come on. Get them up there high. Now, those of you who didn't raise your hands, I just want you to know we'll be starting a new small group, maybe a large group next week called Liars Anonymous. So uh, come on. No. Um, I think most of us, if we were to really be honest with ourselves and get down and really ask ourselves that question, most of us would be willing to admit that at some point in our lives, we have thought, man, it would be nice to have that superhuman ability. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe you wanted to be invisible at some point in your life. Maybe like Superman, you wanted to be able to fly, or maybe you wanted superhuman strength like the Hulk, or... I, I don't know. It could be anything. You know, for me as a kid, I wanted superhuman strength. That was my dream. Now, as an adult, I think these days I would probably settle for some superhuman hair growth. Maybe they could call me Mr. Rogaine or something. I don't know. But um, as a kid, all I wanted was to have superhuman strength. And I used to go out, I remember as a kid, I'd go out in the backyard and really I'd kind of go around to the side of the house. There weren't any windows on the side of the house, so my sister and my, my parents couldn't see me. And, and I would just, I'd have these battles all day long, like I was some sort of superhuman gladiator. I'd take my dad's wheelbarrow and I'd kick it back like a chariot. I'd pick up a, a, a trash can lid and that would be my shield. I'd carve me a sword out of a stick and I'd fight all day long. All day long, and I'd always get bruised and beaten, but never, I'd never get defeated. I'd get knocked out of my chariot, but somehow I'd, I'd climb my way back up. And I'd always come out on top. Because that's, that's kind of how it works with superheroes, isn't it? They always win. Always injured, but never killed. They always seem to win. And you know, kind of the, the funny thing about this situation of me playing this out all day long and in the backyard was that, like I said, I was on the, the side part of the house, which meant, like I said, my sister and my parents couldn't see me, but anybody driving by on the street could see me battling away out there. And I, I remember very vividly, if I heard a car coming down the street, I'd stop, I'd kick the wheelbarrow up, and I'd act like I was raking leaves, maybe just kick some dirt. And as soon as they were gone, I'd spring back into action. I was going to save the day. We all kind of have this desire within us to have some sort of superhuman ability, something about us. You know, I, I did a little search on Google this oh, last couple weeks, and I was looking for superhuman things, and, and I came across this survey that you can take. If you've ever wondered what kind of a superhuman you would be if you were a superhuman, there's actually a survey out there you can take. We'll put my results up here on the screen. That's right, number one, Superman. You better believe I printed this off and handed it to my wife. But I, the thing I don't get, if you look at this, number three is Supergirl. Really? And three out of the top six are, are women? I mean, come on, there's clearly something wrong with this survey because I very clearly marked on one of the questions that I am not comfortable wearing a push-up bra, but yet somehow, 
something wrong with this survey. I, I don't know what it is, but in, in searching the internet, looking at all this superhuman stuff, I came across really some, some fascinating articles about people who are modern-day, real-life superhumans. I mean, if you ever have some spare time, you should, you should look this up. There's really some, some really neat stuff. You've got people like Wim Hof. Go ahead and throw this next picture up here. This fella is a real-life Mr. Freeze. I mean, this guy, he is famous for climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in nothing but a pair of shorts. He holds the world record for sitting in an ice bath for, I think it was an hour and 52 minutes. This guy, researchers have studied him, and they've come to the conclusion that he is capable of consciously controlling his autonomic nervous system. That means he can consciously control the thermostat inside his body. That's superhuman ability right there. And then there's people like this next one. This is Dean Carnazzi's. Dean Carnazzi's is, he's kind of like the Easter, or sorry, the, the Energizer Bunny, not the Easter Bunny, but the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going and going. Sorry, Easter's coming up, guys. You know, we, uh, it's on my mind. But he, this guy just keeps going and going. He, he's, he's famous for spending 80 hours at one time on a treadmill, running the whole time. This guy, he, he ran 50 marathons in 50 consecutive days in 50 states. Once again, researchers have kind of studied this guy, and they've come to the conclusion that if he could stay properly fed and properly hydrated, he could run at the pace of 7 to 10 miles an hour for the rest of his life until he died of old age. That's pretty superhuman ability right there. There's guys like this next one. He, he's a, he's a real-life Batman. His name is Ben Underwood. And it, his story kind of started as sort of a tragic story. At the age of three... This kid got, had to have his eyes surgically removed because of retinal cancer. Now, for most of, most of us, that would be a pretty debilitating experience, but not for Ben Underwood. For Ben Underwood, by the age of five, he had mastered the skill of echolocation. Now, echolocation, that's what bats do. They don't have eyes. They can't see, and so they make noises, and they listen for the, the, how the sound waves bounce off, and they can recreate their environment in their heads by listening to the sounds. And that's exactly what this kid does. He walks around making a clicking noise. And the guy can see essentially where he's going. You see him riding a bike here. There's, there's YouTube videos of this guy rollerblading and riding a bike. That's incredible. He's a real life Batman. There's this next one. Her name is Natasha. Now, Natasha at the age, I think she said it was at the age of about 10, she realized that she had the ability to see within the human body. Now, this one's a little farther out there for me, but she felt like she could see into the human body. And since as she's grown up, people from all over the world have come to this young girl to have her try and figure out what's wrong with her body when medical science wasn't able to do it. There was a special on her about 12 years ago, I think, on, on the Discovery Channel because she has this, this X-ray vision. There's others out there, like a guy who can, who can chop a speeding bullet with a samurai sword, another one who can break a metal bat over his head. I mean, there's really all sorts of fascinating, real-life superhumans out there. But i got to tell you, as a kid, my all-time favorite superhuman was a fellow by the name of Jesus. You may say, well, now, wait a second, Jesus wasn't a superhuman, but I, I called Jesus a superhuman because when I was a kid, that was kind of the view I had of Jesus, that he was this 
superhuman, that he was this character who wandered around the countryside disguised as a Galilean peasant, just kind of waiting for the hat to drop, waiting for something to happen, and he was going to jump into a phone booth, rip off his outer garments, and display a giant G on his chest for God, and then he was going to swoop in and save the day. That was kind of the view I had of Jesus. And that view of Jesus, really, I, I, I kind of carried that even into my college years. Now, some of you may have never thought of it that way, but I'm going to be willing to venture a bet that some of you have a similar view of Jesus. That he's God in disguise. And when I got into college, it was my first year at Ozark Christian College, I came face to face with this concept of Jesus that I'd never heard of before. It's called hypostatic union. Now, don't worry, big word. I don't expect you to know what it means. I'm not going to expect you to remember it when you walk out of here today. But hypostatic union very literally means that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time. Maybe those are terms you've heard, fully God and fully man. You know, it's something that sounds pretty simple at face value, this idea of being fully God and fully man. I think some of us just kind of brush over it and we move on. But if you ever actually sit down and really ponder it, really think about what it means to be fully God and fully man at the same time, the more you think about it, the more difficult it becomes. You know, I've always kind of viewed God and man really is sort of polar opposites in some ways. You've got God over here, and God is not limited by time, space, knowledge. He can be everywhere at all times, knowing all things. That's God. And then you've got us, humans, over here, and, well, we can only be in one place at one time. We certainly don't know everything. We're very limited. You've got God over here who's, who's perfect, and then you've got us over here that, well, not so much. You see, I've always kind of viewed God and humans as, as polar opposites in some ways. Not just different, but, but opposite. And this idea of being fully God and fully man at one time, both of these beings in one place and one being at one, that just seems to me like an awfully good oxymoron kind of like jumbo shrimp or freezer burner, icy hot. I mean, it's, it's two terms, two ideas that just don't seem to go together. And so when I was faced with this idea of being fully God and fully man, I'll be very honest with you. At that time in my life, I struggled with it. I'm not going to tell you I've got a great grasp on it today, but I really struggled with it at that time, my freshman year in Bible college. It pushed me into sort of a deep, dark, lonely place because I knew that I had to, I had to somehow come to grips with this idea because it was going to forever change the way I viewed Jesus Christ and ultimately it was going to forever change the way I lived my life. And so I spent the better part of nine months studying this, this idea of being fully God and fully man, researching it, finding all the books and everything I could find, talking to professors. I had to come to grips with it. And there was one passage in my studies that just kept popping up. 
over and over again. It's this passage in Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to start out this morning. Go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul has written this letter to the church in Philippi. And in chapter 2, he's, he's trying to encourage these Christians to be like Jesus. And so if he's going to encourage them to be like Jesus, he needs to spend a little bit of time describing who Jesus is and how he became who he is. And so he goes into this, this lesson describing Jesus and really kind of talking about this idea of being fully God and fully man. It starts in verse 6. Just listen to this. It's really an interesting passage. Paul says, Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He laid aside his mighty power and glory and took on the humble position of a slave and was born in the likeness of men and was found in appearance as a man. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Now, the very first part of that is, starts off and Paul says, though he was God. So he's getting this out right off the bat. Jesus is God. No question there. And you know, I didn't ever struggle with that. If if you asked me, was Jesus God? I didn't have any problem with that because I, had, I, I was aware of the miracles that Jesus performed. I was aware of how Jesus had fulfilled prophecy. I was aware of how Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. I mean, those are God kind of things. Most of us don't have a problem saying Jesus is God. And that's what Paul starts off by saying, Jesus is God. In fact, if you were to go back to the the book of Genesis and the creation account, you find this very curious statement. God has just finished creating the the world and creating all the creatures that are in it, and he's turning his attention to creating you and I, and he says this very curious little thing. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, Either God has multiple personalities because he says us and our, or somebody's there with him. Now, who could have been there with God in the very beginning? God hadn't created people yet, so who's there? I tell you what, a couple thousand years later, John's going to answer this question for us in the book of John. As the apostle John says in chapter 1, he starts off his book by saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was where? With God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John is very clear that, hey, there was somebody there in the beginning. This this being, character, fellow that John refers to as the Word. So the Word was there in the beginning. And we have to ask ourselves the question, well, who's the Word? And if you read on through the book of John there, you find that John gets pretty clear as to who the Word is. And he explains it further down in verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In other words, the Word became a human. And He he came to live with us. Now, if 
That's not clear enough for you right there who the Word is, that it is Jesus. You can read on through the book of John, and he makes it very clear that he's talking about Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was there in the beginning, Jesus was God. No question about that. But then Jesus, as God, became man. And how does he do that? That's why Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, he tries to explain this to us, and he says that Jesus laid aside his mighty power and glory. And he was born in the likeness of men and was found in appearance as a man. The idea here is not that Jesus changed his identity, but more that he changed his role. He didn't become something he wasn't, He just added to who he already was. He chose to lay aside his powers. They were still available to him. I know this is a tough concept to kind of wrap your mind around, but the book of Timothy talks about how how Jesus still had access to eternality and immortality and invisibility and all these sorts of God kind of things. He had access to those powers, but Jesus chose to lay them aside And not really make use of them. I like the way Augustine put it when he said, Christ added to himself that which he was not. He did not lose what he was. So he was still fully God, but somehow he has now become fully man. And when I say fully man, I mean fully man. Not like God disguised as man. Not like partially man. I mean fully man. I like what Mark Driscoll says about this topic. He says, Jesus was a dude. He was a construction worker who swung a hammer for a living. If we had seen Jesus as a man, we would have seen a normal-looking guy carrying his lunchbox in one hand, his toolbox in the other, heading off to work. He did normal things that actual people do, like farting, going to the bathroom, blowing boogers from his nose. And Mark Driscoll goes on to say, I say all these things not to be sacrilegious or demeaning to Jesus in any way, but to point out that Jesus was fully human with a real physical body that functioned like our physical bodies function. And these are just the practical implications of that truth. But for many of us, I don't think we ever really see Jesus as a man. We tend to think he's somehow pretending to be a man. Like we expect to see Jesus kind of give us this nice little wink and a nod every time he performs a miracle or raises somebody from a dead. But let me ask you this. If if Jesus is simply God pretending to be a man, how do you explain situations like the Garden of Gethsemane? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is just hours from his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. And the gospel writers describe Jesus as being in anguish, such severe anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound to me like somebody who's pretending. In the book of Luke, after Jesus has fasted for 40 days, Luke tells us, guess what? Jesus was hungry. In John, 
When Jesus stops and talks to the woman at the well, he asks the woman to, to draw up some water for him. Why? Because he was thirsty. You see, Jesus was a real human, just like you and I. He has friends, family. I'm sure he got tired of going to work sometimes. I'm sure he got blisters on his feet and calluses on his hands. He had times of joy and happiness, times of sadness and heartache. He got stressed from time to time. He went to parties. He celebrated. He did the things normal people do. And I can't help but think that Jesus must have been a pretty fun dude. I mean, just look through the New Testament, all the parties this guy got invited to. You don't get invited to that many parties if you're a stick in the mud, now do you? And, uh, I mean, of course a guy like this is going to get invited to parties. I mean, after all, this is the guy that can turn water into wine. That kind of guy is going to be the life of the party, isn't he? Jesus went through the full range of human emotions. He had fun. He liked to joke around with his disciples. He liked to kind of poke the Pharisees. When his friend Lazarus died, the Bible says that Jesus wept. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, he was still sad and he cried. As he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane, the gospel writers describe fear. As Jesus hung on the cross, you can't help but see the pain as he was beaten. You see, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you see the human side of him. And now, I know some of you are probably asking the question this morning, why are we spending all this time talking about how human Jesus is? Why does it really matter that Jesus was human? Some of you may have never really considered it before, never thought about whether Jesus really was fully human or whether he was just God disguised as a human. What does it matter? Well, you may not realize it, but this is a very crucial point in our understanding of who Jesus is, in our understanding of Christianity and what it means to us. Let me, let me tell you why. I'm going to read something to you from Hebrews chapter 2. It's in verse 17. This is what it says. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. Talking about Jesus, he had to be made like you and I in every way. Why? In order that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in service to God. This is what I want you to get. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The Bible tells us he had to be like you and I in every way so that he could make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, atonement very literally means to put away. It's talking about the wrath of God. You see, when we sin, we arouse the wrath of God. Essentially, we become enemies of God. And we have to find a way to appease that wrath and, and put it away. And so if you look through the Old Testament, there's all these, all these kind of bloody stories and experiences of people sacrificing animals, goats, bulls, lambs, doves. They did all these sacrifices to the Old Testament because that was the only way they could sort of put off the wrath of God was to sort of delay it for a year. And so throughout the Old Testament and really up to the resurrection of Jesus, you've got these people, these sinners, 
that are trying to avoid the wrath of God, and all they can do is make these sacrifices and try to sort of kick the can down the road, if you will, buy them some more time so that next year they can once again offer animal sacrifices and try to keep God happy for another year. And that's the way it was all throughout the Old Testament. But the problem with that is these people still lived their lives with this guilt held over their heads. And this guilt that they had over their sins stood between them and God. It kept them from having that that close personal relationship that God had created them to have. That close personal relationship that God had once had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That close personal relationship that God so longed to have with His people again, but He couldn't because of that guilt. And so God concocted a plan. And now some of you may say, well, now wait a second. Why couldn't God just say, forget about your sins. Forget about the guilt. Let's all come together and sing Kumbaya. Why why, why couldn't God do that? I mean, God was a gracious God. He is a gracious God. Why couldn't his grace take over and we just say, "Eh, let's just forget about everything you've ever done and let's all come back together and have this close personal relationship. He couldn't do that because God is a just God. And to just say, eh, let's forget about it, forget about all your sins, that's unjust. It's contrary to God's character. God knew very well that the only way to get the people out of this cycle of sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin, all with this guilt over their head, was to have a human sacrifice. A final sacrifice that could get them out of this cycle. And he knew very well that that final sacrifice, that sacrifice that would do away with all other sacrifices, be the once for all sacrifice, it had to be two things. It had to be a human because it was taking our place. And if it was going to be the final once for all sacrifice, it had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the problem with this is, there hadn't ever been a perfect human. No perfect human had ever walked the face of this earth. And so this is where we see the need for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. He had to be man in order to take our place, but he had to be God in order to be perfect and to be that final sacrifice. You see, Jesus had to be both. If he wasn't both, he didn't really do us any good at all. If he was one or the other, he doesn't meet the qualifications to be that final once-for-all sacrifice. And if he doesn't meet the qualifications to be that final once-for-all sacrifice, then you and I need to start living with a much greater sense of guilt. And we need to start sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats and doves and all that stuff again. Are you beginning to see why the humanity of Jesus is so important? Without the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus... It doesn't really mean anything to us. 
He had to be both. I think sometimes we look at the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, and I think sometimes we tend to do this subconsciously. I know I do, but we tend to think that and picture Jesus not as a human making the sacrifice, but as God making that sacrifice. This allows us to sort of downplay the pain and suffering. It kind of takes the, the edge off of the blow. We can say to ourselves, well, yeah, of course Jesus could, could handle that beating and then all that pain and suffering. I mean, he's God. We can say, well, well of course Jesus could handle the, 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 the sadness and the sorrow and the separation and the loss. I mean, he's God. He can do that. We can say, of course Jesus was able to willingly go to a cross and die in our place. I mean, He's God, right? But the thing I want you to get this morning is that God on that cross, it doesn't do us any good. It had to be a human sacrifice. And that's exactly why Paul says in the book of Philippians, he laid aside his mighty power and glory and was born in the likeness of men and was found in appearance as a man. And so this morning, it's my hope that you will realize that Jesus is not only God, but he's also human. He had to be. I mean, I, I hope that this morning you will realize just what that means about His love for you. First off, you've got God who's willing to lay aside all His power, all His glory, all His might. He's willing to put that all aside and come down here and be like you and I? That just blows my mind. But then he goes a step further. Not only does he become like you and I, but he takes on our sins, our guilt, our responsibilities. And he goes to a cross and dies what was designed by the Romans to be the most brutal death in the history of man. And he does all of that just so that he might have a chance to be in a relationship with you and me. I mean, this God-man gave up his Goddom, if you will, and came down here to be like us. <clears throat> He died on a cross so that he could have a relationship with us and bring us back into his presence. He's the only one that could take our place. And this God-man, he wants to be with you. How incredible is that? Let's pray. Father, we, we adore you. 
God, we can't fathom the kind of love that you have for us. That you would not only concoct a plan like this to bring us back into your presence, but that you would be willing and able to follow through on it. That's a love that we just cannot understand. And so God, this morning, in response to that love, we offer our lives back to you. Father, we love you so much. And it's in your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.